Carnival in Venice is legendary, and participation in the festival's rituals used to be mandatory. In Venice, by law, Venetians had to wear a special costume and masks all year round, not just a carnival. Coming up, we'll look at what Venice was like in the libertine 18th century world of Casanova. When carnival spread to Trinidad and across the Caribbean, it gave everyone permission to let off a little steam. Way back in slavery days, carnival was a time of turnabout, as it was called, for people to mimic their masters and to play a role that they're not necessarily afforded in everyday life. We'll also hear how most of Florida dodged the worst of the hurricanes and is back to business as usual this year. Basically, our economy is set up like a Ponzi scheme where we have to continually have more and more and more people buying into the scheme to keep it going. Come along as we shine a little light on the Sunshine State, the Caribbean, and Casanova's Venice. It's all just ahead on today's Travel with Rick Steves. When you think about it, globalization is nothing new. You could argue it began in earnest 300 years ago in the Caribbean, when a boom in sugar exports and the slave trade, evil as it was, connected people from the far corners of the world. On today's Travel with Rick Steves, Joshua Jelly Shapiro explains how European colonial powers have left their marks on different islands. As a frequent visitor to the Caribbean, Joshua also updates us on the impact of last fall's deadly hurricanes. We'll look at how it affects neighboring Florida as well. Right now, it's carnival season, and one of the world's biggest and oldest party scenes is going on in normally serene Venice. In the 18th century, Venice was a required stop on the Grand Tour, which young European gentlemen of means enjoyed as part of their coming of age. Historian Lawrence Burgreen joins us now for a look at the city that one of the world's most recognized libertines of the time, Giacomo Casanova, called home. Lawrence, thanks for joining us. I'm glad to be here. Thank you. So Casanova, I mean, he's just synonymous for a great lover and a great seducer. But he's more than that. I mean, he's an incredible personality, and and thankfully he left a massive memoir for us to learn. Give us a little thumbnail about why he is such an exceptional personality. Well, in addition to all his exploits, for which he's so well known, and which he writes about in great detail, he wrote, uh, published about 150 books and pamphlets during his lifetime, 12 volumes of memoirs, plays, a three-volume science fiction novel, political journalism, all sorts of polemics, a translation of the Iliad into hmm. Italian from Greek. So he had a huge literary output. In addition to that, he was a mathematical genius, which was part of his success as a gambler. He was a professional oh, gambler. Oh, he was a gambler. So he it takes a lot of money to have a hundred mistresses. And uh, uh, yes, he, yes, did he get most of that money from gambling? That was how he got almost all his money. And he understood the laws of probability, which was an emerging mathematical concept in his lifetime in the 18th century. And he actually managed to, when he escaped to Paris, convince the French crown to institute a lottery because they badly needed money. Using Casanova's system, which was based on a lottery in Genoa, they instituted a very successful lottery, raised money quickly. Casanova got a share of the ticket offices Hmm. around Paris and very quickly became wealthy, although he blew it on all sorts of ridiculous business adventures. But that would have empowered France, which eventually uh, overthrew the Venetian Republic, right? Yes, it's a funny story. <laughs> it's kind Part of, comes of that around. money was used to finance the École Militaire, the French Military Academy in Paris. One of the first students to go there was a young Corsican named Napoleon Bonaparte. Ten years after he graduated, when he was still in his late 20s, he conquered Venice. By that time, Casanova had fled the city. 
And that was the end of a thousand years of the Venetian Empire. Okay, but that was the last nail in the coffin right. of the Venetian Republic because it was already in decline. And Napoleon didn't like Venice. He didn't like Venetians. He sent Josephine in his stead to go visit. He didn't even want to see it. But um, at that point, Venice, which had been in decline for a long time, fell easily, and uh, that was the end of it. However, the Venetian mystique endures to this day. Oh, yeah. Now, when you think of Venice, it's hard to underestimate what a power it was for centuries. I mean, a thousand years ago, it was the economic superpower in Europe. Its dollar was the dollar. And then it slowly, well, part of the problem was, uh, in fact, you wrote a book, I think, about Marco Polo and uh, all the trade that Venice got from the East. But when we have Vasco da Gama and Magellan and Columbus, you know, around the year 1500, all of a sudden the trade's gone and, and Venice is just sitting on its laurels. And over time, it just becomes a city of decadence in decline. It's sort yeah. of a time warp. And talk about Venice in the 18th century. It really was sort of the sin city of Europe back then. What, what happens in Venice stays in Venice, right? <laughs> Yes, it just became more and more ossified. It seemed caught in the Middle Ages, even as the rest of European history went on, and uh, it lost its colonies, it lost its economic prowess. It was still controlled by the same 400 families who were written down in the Golden Book, the so-called Libra d'Oro. And uh, this was a very, very tightly knit case, which concentrated power, but also strangled Venice. You know, it was so conservative, they had to have an outlet, and maybe that's why Carnival, it's just synonymous with Venice. It is synonymous. Of course, there's Carnival in many other countries. But interestingly enough, we think of Carnival and the masks in Venice, particularly only at Carnival time. However, in Venice, by law, Venetians had to wear a special costume and masks all year round, not just a carnival, and not only outdoors, but indoors. And they were not allowed to speak to foreigners. Contact or conversations with foreigners were, by law, outlawed. Is so that it was right? a very introverted culture in Casanova's day. And you even read in your book that there were some masks that were designed for women not to talk to anybody at all. Yeah, it's really extraordinary. The woman's mask was a circular black one called a moretta. It had a button in the middle, and a woman held it between her teeth. And, of course, that way she couldn't talk. The man's mask was a rigid white one called a bauta, which was sort of scary. That's what Casanova and everybody else was wearing. This also made it possible for a lot of murder and mayhem to take place in the streets and back alleys of Venice, especially at night, and seductions, when there were all these balls. And you can see pictures from Casanova's day. Everybody's there in their masks, um, in a ball, uh, you know, indoors. It's not carnival, wearing the Venetian costume, which was a three-cornered hat and a mantle and kind of a puffy (laughs) uh, shirt or blouse. So Venetians had a very distinctive dress. It was a very, very particular part of Italy and Europe. So it sounds like these were repressed people, like oversexed Jackson boxes that were just ready to (laughs) spring open at the first excuse, the first little private time on a gondola, and bam. Yeah, Yeah, though gondolas then in Venice were different. They looked more or less like they do now. However, they had enclosed cabins, so they became venues for seduction. So if you were with a woman on a gondola, you would close the windows and uh, you could proceed aboard a gondola, which in fact Casanova did. Nearly 300 years ago, Venice had a reputation as the pleasure capital of Europe. Historian Lawrence Berggreen is bringing it to life for us right now on Travel with Rick Steves with his book Casanova, 
the world of a seductive genius. Lawrence has also written biographies of Columbus, Magellan, and Marco Polo, as well as Al Capone, Louis Armstrong, and Irving Berlin. We have a link to his website with this week's show at ricksteves.com radio. Also, convents in Venice were often venues for seduction. Convents? Convents in Venice, many of them were actually harems. And the women were sent there not because they were pursuing religious vocations, but because their wealthy families, especially the 400 families who controlled Venice, wanted to make sure they didn't get married and dilute the family fortune and dilute the family bloodlines. What happened is they were kept there literally behind bars, but they would receive visitors, Casanova and many others, and especially tourists across Europe and England Hmm. who would come bearing gifts and court them, and every so often they would have orgies there behind bars, or they would escape for a few hours and go to a small casino or some other building for an assignation, and then creep back to their convent. An orgy at the convent, why not? (laughs) Casanova (laughs) writes about this. I was skeptical. I thought, well, this must be his superactive imagination, but I came across many other accounts of these really scandalous goings-on at Venice. Lawrence, I've seen paintings of these convents with all of these women that look like they're in a bordello. And it's yes, uh, in the um, Carrizonico. Don't miss the Carrizonico. It's the Museum of 18th Century Venice, and it, it yes. shows all of this stuff right out of the age of Casanova. When we're in Venice, we have this uh, history all around us, and there were these yes. 400 families and all of these aristocrats who really were above the normal rules and these libertines, which was the, yes. the hedonist of the day that wanted to almost be promiscuous as a declaration of independence from conservative mores. I've had guides take me to these kind of like aristocratic man caves. They called them casinos. Uh, The word casino comes from these little hideaways for aristocrats. Talk about the life of these aristocrats, and they would have maybe a palace on the mainland and a little hideaway in Venice. Since Venice was so tiny, many of the aristocrats did have a mansion or a very large house on the mainland, and they went back and forth, especially around Padua. And they had their mistresses. Uh, They gambled incessantly. Casanova wasn't the only one. The main gambling area was called the Redato, which was highly popular and served as a magnet for tourists across Europe. Of course, there were the famous cafes of Venice, which also attracted a lot of tourists and had a very, very active street life and cafe life. We're talking with Lawrence Burgreen, and his book is Casanova, The World of a Seductive Genius. You know, and when we're on the main square in the Piazza San Marco, you've got several of these elegant old-world cafes, and Florian's is most famous, I believe, and they're with the famous dueling orchestras, and most of the tourists sit outside to enjoy the outdoor orchestras, but I really like going inside and sitting in some of these cozy little uh, cafe rooms. And they look more or less as they did in Casanova's time. Now, it's interesting. He writes about how lively the scene was as a young person, and then he also writes how empty and deserted and sad they became after Napoleon conquered Venice when Casanova was much older and he went back briefly to visit and all the street life had uh, gone out of it. So Venice underwent a dramatic change in his lifetime. Venice was also a city of a lot of music. Oddly enough, Casanova disliked music, but this was the city of Vivaldi, the Red Priest as he was known, and many other composers. Music was in the air. It was the city of Commedia dell'arte, especially Galdoni, who wrote many plays that his mother, the famous actress, acted in. 
so there was a lot of cultural life in Venice as well. It wasn't just decadence. Uh, Lawrence, let's just talk about, as a visitor to Venice, if we want to just imagine the allure of the place, the, the romance of the place in the 1700s, take us to a little spot in Venice that inspires you to go back and, and feel the moment of Casanova's time. Well, I would say anywhere along the Grand Canal, but it's not so much a place in my own mind as Venice, but it's a time of year. I was once there at November, and it was cold, and it got dark early, and it was foggy, and it was damp. The tourists were gone. And I remember being there and walking around the streets of Venice at night when there were just a few cats running around and shadows around the corner and you didn't know what you'd see if you walked down an alley. That's another side of Venice, which I thought was very haunting and very moody. And I've never forgotten it. I just, uh, when I think of Venice, I actually think of this moody, nighttime, foggy Venice, uh, very noir Venice, if you will. Lawrence Bergreen, fascinating book, Casanova, The World of a Seductive Genius. Thanks for being with us. Thank you. In just a bit, we'll look at how they're celebrating Carnival in the Caribbean and find out which islands were and were not affected by the deadly hurricanes of 2017. But first, let's get an update on Florida from Craig Pittman of the Tampa Bay Times. Forecasts for the citrus harvest have been kind of flat, but after Irma's visit last fall, the state's resilient tourism industry remains primed and ready for visitors. A look at what's up this year in the Sunshine State is next on Travel with Rick Steves. The 2017 hurricane season in the Caribbean and Florida will be a hard one to forget. The paths of Irma and Maria will be evident for a long time, and recovery efforts have been frustratingly slow in some places. We'll look at the impacts on the Caribbean islands a little later in the hour. First, let's check in with Craig Pittman at the Tampa Bay Times for an update on how Florida has fared and how the state's important tourism sector has been doing. Craig is a native Floridian, born in Pensacola, and today he covers the environmental beat for the paper. Craig first joined us last September on Travel with Rick Steves to let us in on the idiosyncrasies of the Sunshine State with real-life tales he features in his book, Oh, Florida, How America's Weirdest State Influences the Rest of the Country. Craig, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me back. We keep hearing how the hurricanes just devastated some of the islands in the Caribbean, and they also came ashore in Florida. What was the impact of Irma and other storms in 2017? Well, Hurricane Irma hit Florida pretty hard in places. There are parts of the state that are still trying to recover from that, particularly in the Middle Keys and uh, up in northeast Florida where there are still people in tents, some people in FEMA paid for hotels. But in most of the state, things are pretty much back to normal. Uh, in fact, uh, Key West, I think, had their uh, fantasy fest <laughs> not long after the hurricane hit, just so they could uh, basically tell the tourists, hey, we're back in business, everybody. I suppose Key West needs to make that really clear, because uh, one bad headline can mess up their economy in the coming months. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And I mean, they've been a tourist-based economy since the Depression. The uh, federal government actually took over the city because it, it was bankrupt. and, and Wow. Federal folks from FDR's recovery program said, you guys ought to stop dealing with all these other industries you're trying to do and just do tourism. And so they've been a, a tourist-based economy ever since. So Key West is doing quite well, actually, and but you yes. said the Middle Keys have some problems. Yeah, and it hit there really hard. Uh, I think the last number I saw, Hurricane Irma destroyed about 1,900 buildings throughout the Keys. Wow. It was just, it was serious devastation for a lot of those folks. And they're, you know, trying to cope, trying to come back from it, but it's it's really difficult. 
But overall, in the rest of the state, things seem to have kind of calmed down and seem to be normal again. People are kind of, you know, once November 30th hits and the hurricane season ends, everybody kind of breathes a sigh of relief yeah. anyway. They really did that this time. Um, I think it was a, a Category 4 uh, sigh of relief that they breathed <laughs> this time. <laughs> well, tragic as it was, Florida must feel like it dodged a bullet to a certain degree. Could have been worse. Yes, could uh, have been it could have been much worse. We Everybody was afraid it was going to be much worse. The uh, evacuation that we did showed that everybody was really desperate to uh, get out of the way of the storm. And then um, a lot of places didn't suffer the damage that they feared they were going to. Uh, mm-hmm. I know my area, the Tampa area, was spared. We thought we were going to hit with a Category 4, and instead oh. it was a Category 2 by the time it got to us. I, you know, I lost a picket out of my picket fence. That was oh, about it. That's so, so, so yeah. I, you know, yeah. So we were very blessed. We were mm-hmm. very blessed. A lot of folks were not. And yeah. you were asking about the long-term effects. Um, the fact that a lot of people were without power for a long time mm-hmm. has led to some real serious conversations about that. But whether that will lead to any actual changes, I don't know. At this point, I'm not sure it will. Now, do you think that the infrastructure of a city like Miami is strong enough to survive something that would basically destroy San Juan, Puerto Rico? I mean, to a certain degree, I would think it's the it's the infrastructure as well as the speed of the wind that determines the damage. Well, that's a good question. The, the big problem they had in Miami was with the storm surge, where mm-hmm. they had lots of water in the streets, and it stayed there for quite a while, and it showed people there that, you know, wow, if this is the amount of damage that can be done with a, a fairly mild hit from a hurricane. What's right. going to happen if we actually get a another Hurricane Andrew, a Category 5, through here? And so there's been some discussion about trying to change the infrastructure, trying to strengthen things, mm-hmm. uh, you know, possibly even burying uh, power lines underground. Mm. And uh, as usual, there's a lot of resistance to that from people saying, well, you know, we're, we're fine so far, we'll be fine again. And you know, burying power lines underground is really expensive and mm. trying to beef up the building codes might hurt the economy too. And so it seems to happen every time we have a pretty strong hurricane come through that people say, wow, you know, we could have been much worse. Let's try and prepare. And other folks say, well, but it hasn't been that bad. And why do we need to change? So you get that sort of struggle going on. And and meanwhile, of course, we have thousands of new people moving into Florida every day. And a lot of them don't know about those issues. So it's easier for politicians to kick the can down the road. Speaking of people moving in, by the way, the other big hurricane impact on Florida is Hurricane Maria hitting Puerto Rico has sent, uh, I think the last number I saw was something like 200,000 Puerto Ricans to move to Florida. Wow. uh, Mostly in the central Florida area where there was already a pretty strong Puerto Rican colony there dating back to when Disney World opened. But now that has really swollen. And uh, some of those folks may go back to Puerto Rico eventually, but a lot of them, I think, are going to stay. And we'll see what kind of a change that causes in the political landscape, the economic and social landscape. Let's talk for a minute about the political landscape, because I can't remember a vote in Florida that's been decided by uh, more than (laughs) 200,000 people. That's a a, a real seismic change, isn't it, to get 200,000 new voters in? They're all American citizens, and now they're going to vote... If I understood in Puerto Rico, they, their their vote really didn't count, but in Florida it does. No, no. In, in in Puerto Rico they can vote. They have a primary, mm-hmm. but they can't vote in the general election. Well, right. now they can. If they're in Florida, they can vote in the 2018 and 2020 elections, and that could make a big difference. Meanwhile, uh, South Florida is seeing a large influx of uh, Venezuelans drawn by the sort of real estate bubble that's going on there. So yeah. that's making some cultural and political changes there as well. Well, this is really fascinating. Uh, do you know offhand? Craig, how many more people voted for Trump than Clinton in the last election in Florida? It was close. It was really close. Uh, talking, not close enough to trigger a recount, but uh, tens thank of heavens. Thousands? But <laughs> was it like tens yeah. of thousands? 
Yeah, it was it was really close. And the really interesting thing to me is, you know, the people have often talked about the Interstate Four corridor where the theme parks are as sort of the indicator of how the rest of America is going to go because it's such a diverse yeah. area. And I four was not unified this time. I four was just as split as the rest of the country was. But you take two hundred thousand Puerto Ricans who probably have a chip on their shoulder about how the government helped out their island after the hurricane. They're going to be voting in twenty twenty. Yes. Yeah, and it should be interesting. And I'm, and I'm sure both parties are very actively trying to reach out to those folks right now and probably doing more than just tossing paper towels at them. Ta. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Craig Pittman. His book is Oh, Florida. And we're talking about Florida and the aftermath of the hurricanes in 2017 and also environmental concerns about the Sunshine State. Craig, as a person who clearly loves Florida, I mean, when you read your book, Oh, Florida, it's just you are Florida through and through. I'm just Absolutely. wondering if you're, if you're frustrated by your state's inability to take the threat of climate change seriously. And it, it takes a lot of money. And my concern is kind of drawn from what I've seen in Europe. Because uh, in Europe, I, I look at infrastructure projects. Rotterdam in the Netherlands has made this storm barrier surge that's as big as two Eiffel Towers on their side that roll together and then roll open depending on the threat of storm surges. Uh, in Hamburg, they've raised their levees along their harbor front for 10 or 20 miles that are anticipating higher sea levels. They've landscaped it so it really looks nice, but it's a huge investment. Uh, nowadays, buildings in, in Hamburg are built atop floodable garages in anticipation of higher sea levels. And, of course, the Dutch, who are famously frugal, are spending billions of euros reinforcing their dikes by moving literally mountains of sand. What is your take as a Floridan, considering this rising threat from the environment uh, in your state? Do you feel that your government is responding, or what's your gut reaction to this? Well, uh, it's a very Florida reaction to look at things that are going on and say, well, I'll worry about that tomorrow or maybe not at all and just enjoy the good times while they're going on. But um, just because our state government refuses to even acknowledge climate change doesn't mean that there's nothing happening here. Our uh, cities and county governments and universities have all been working together on ideas for adapting to uh, sea level rise. They haven't gotten to the extent that they have in, the folks have in Europe, but they are working on it and mm -hmm. uh, they are spending money on it. The thing is they, they can see firsthand the impact that this is having on their communities and they know that this is real and they have to do something about it. The downside, of course, of not having the state government involved is there's not nearly as much money available for the kind of adaptation that they need to do. And it's kind of ironic because our governor actually lives on the water in Naples. He has a waterfront mansion. I interviewed a county planner who said, yeah, you know, he's going to be one of the first victims of the rising sea level. So, and, Do I understand? Uh, <laughs> is he the guy that says you're not even supposed to say the word climate change in, in government? That was, the, that was the story. He denies that he ever said that. But he, <laughs> he is on record saying, you know, that people ask him about climate change, and he says, well, I'm not a scientist. And so yeah, yeah. a group of Florida scientists <laughs> actually met with him and said, here's the evidence. And he said, well, I'm interested in solutions. And they said, great. So they sent him a bunch of solutions, and that's he, they've never heard anything more from him. It's uh, interesting, Craig, because I grew up knowing this uh, joke that if you're going to sell a sucker something, you tell him, uh, I've got some swamp land in Florida to sell you. Mm -hmm. we, might have Absolutely. An, we might have an update of that joke. Now, I've got some sea-level <laughs> property in Florida to sell you. Uh, <laughs> oh, it's in central Florida. <laughs> <laughs> Has there been any impact on, on real estate values? No, and uh, that's why I say it's a very Florida attitude to say, mm -hmm. oh, the way things are today is the way the, they will always be, because yeah. WLRN, a, a radio station down in South Florida, just did a story saying, well, sea level rise doesn't seem to be having any impact at all on the real estate market in South Florida. People are mm -hmm. still buying yeah. waterfront, even knowing that you know that might actually be underwater not too long from now. 
And beyond the um, specter of rising uh, sea levels and so on, the geology of Florida is quite delicate. I understand it's like it's like your state is living on a sponge. Yeah, it's uh, it's what they call karst. It's a karst landscape. Mm-hmm. Maybe a better comparison would be Swiss cheese. It's uh, limestone, and it's full of all kinds of holes, and water flows through that, and sometimes the holes collapse, and that's how we get sinkholes. You know, and we're drawing water, we're drawing a tremendous amount of water out of that aquifer that's dodging in and out among those holes. And so if you pull too much of that water out, that can lead to more sinkholes. So that's, you know, that's something that you have to be concerned about. I mean, there are people who like to dive down into the sinkholes, into the springs that flow uh, out of our aquifer and try and see how far down they can go. It's a very dangerous sport, but they really enjoy it. And several of them have told me that springs that they have tried to dive in before and couldn't get very far because of the flow, because the flow was too strong, now they can get pretty far up in those things wow. because the flow has been diminished by people over-pumping the aquifer for drinking water for new development. I, I would imagine you're one of the faster-growing states in population. Does rising oh, popu- yes. population density add to the concern? Yes, absolutely. We passed New York in 2014 to become the third most populous state in the nation, uh, which is amazing when you Mm. consider that in 1940, we were the least populated state east of the Mississippi. And so we've just seen this tremendous wrenching demographic change in the state. And somebody very cleverly pointed out that basically our economy is set up like a Ponzi scheme where we have to continually have more and more and more people buying into the scheme to keep it going. And if the flow of new residents stops, well, then the whole economy sort of grinds to a halt. And keeping up with that is very, very difficult. And it's going to get progressively more difficult, and it's going to take, I think, courageous political leadership to speak the truth about this. We're not known for that in Florida. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Florida is a popular destination for some 100 million visitors each year. Craig Pittman's helping us better understand the state of the state in 2018 right now on Travel with Rick Steves. Craig's a columnist and environmental reporter for the Tampa Bay Times. He's also written the book, Oh, Florida, about the state's beauty and its fantasies, as well as its contradictions and political influence. You'll find links to his websites with this week's show notes at ricksteves.com slash radio. One thing you're known for is gorgeous nature. I mean, we're not even talking about uh, theme parks and so on, and of course, that's a whole different interview, but like the Everglades, I, I mean, it's just such a wonderland. How is the health of the Everglades lately? And I know you're very um, interested in environmental issues, and, and that's what you report on. Yes. What's the news from an environmentalist point of view with all the changes that's going on in our world for the Everglades? Um, an international organization, the International Union of Concerned Scientists, or IUCN, uh, just announced that the Everglades were now considered to be the most endangered site in North America. Which is ironic because about 20 years ago, Congress and Florida legislature got together and passed laws to set up the Comprehensive Everglades Restoration Act. And the idea was we would spend $7.8 billion on the largest environmental restoration program humanity has ever seen. And at the end of 20 years, the Everglades would once again flow the way it used to. Maybe not naturally, but with a lot of artificial help, it would once again flow and be healthy Mm. the way it was. And the reality is that there's been lots and lots and lots of delays. Price has gone way up. I think the last cost estimate was around $20 billion. They've barely gotten started on some of the projects they were supposed to have built by now. Mm. And Everglades restoration is way behind. And there's some question about whether all of the projects they had in mind will ever get built. And it's sad because one of the precursors to this project was the Kissimmee River, which the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers had straightened in the name of flood protection back in the 60s. 
which of course you know made it flow really well and there weren't, weren't any flooding problems anymore but it delivered pollution directly into Lake Okeechobee. Well, mm-hmm. they've put the bends back in the Kissimmee River, and it's a wonder. It, it is back the way it was. It's attracting, mm. you know, bird life the way it used to. It's a, mm. uh, Ecologically, it's a thriving ecosystem once again. And the idea is if they could do that with the Kissimmee River, then they can apply those lessons with the Everglades. But so far, that has not happened. So is there development interests that run directly opposed to the health of the Everglades? Well, uh, the irony here is that the deal was sold to the legislature and Congress on two different bases. Uh, To the Congress, it was sold as this is a great thing for America to do to recreate this valuable uh, ecological resource. To the Florida legislature, it was sold as a water supply project. Hmm. We'll restore the Everglades, and that way there'll be enough water for South Florida to continue developing for the next 20 or 30 years. Hmm. Well, when you stall out Everglades restoration, both of those lose out. Hmm. And so that water supply that's supposed to help out future development in South Florida, they're not getting that either. Mm -hmm. I heard God made alligators in order to drive away the developers. (laughs) (laughs) alligators are my heroes i know of at least three instances where alligators help the police capture crooks or trying to get away (laughs) that must be in your book old florida you got oh yes yes yes. filled with these kind of anecdotes oh yes talk about taking a bite out of crime yes (laughs) (laughs) good Uh, there is this issue of fresh water and salt water and where it comes together and are you seeing that salt water is encroaching on freshwater environments Yes, and that's part of that is sea level rise going on, mm-hmm. um, and it's sort of the undiscussed aspect of sea level rise is how it will uh, encroach on that underground aquifer that we have in Florida mm-hmm. that we depend on for our fresh water. Well, as the sea level goes up, then that makes that aquifer more brackish, and well, you can't really use it for, I for water supply. I gotta say, Florida's expertise at not dealing with uh, realities in the future today is going to really come up and and, and uh, bite you worse than an alligator. Oh yeah, definitely. I think hindsight is our favorite site in Florida. (laughs) This is Travel with Rick Steves. We've been talking with Craig Pittman. His book is Oh, Florida, talking about the wonders of Florida and the challenges facing Florida environmentally. Craig, has any of these environmental issues or or the, the hit of the hurricanes and so on, has that hurt the brand of Florida from a tourism point of view at this point? Is is the state tourism board concerned about the brand? No. It seems like no matter what we do, people continue flocking to Florida. I mean, uh, you know, after the Pulse shooting in Orlando, people thought, oh, the tourists will be turned away. No, they were not. After the hurricane, people thought, oh, you know, tourists will be turned off. No, they were not. People just keep coming to Florida. It's To them, it's this wonderful paradise that they want to visit, mm-hmm. and we certainly do nothing to discourage that, uh, regardless of what the reality is on the ground. What sort of wisdom would you share with the, with the leaders of your state who want to make Florida a place that people continue wanting to visit? I always tell folks that Florida is an evolutionary test, and if you can survive it, then you are the fittest. And uh, I say that because of uh, the challenges it presents. I mean, you know, we are the place that gets more lightning strikes than anywhere else. We have more sinkholes than anywhere else. We get hit by more hurricanes. Uh, We have more shark bites than anywhere else in the world. And, of course, there's that creepy clown college down in Sarasota. Um, You know, but it's still a worthwhile place to visit, it's a wonderful place to live. There's so many wonderful things to, to do and see here. And uh, I've got a Florida bucket list I'm still working on. I just crossed something off of it the other day. And so I would tell people, come here, but just remember that it's not all built by Disney. Uh, you know, there are things here that can break pretty easily. And so be sensitive to that. Craig Pittman, right now I can see the the reason for the title of your book. <laughs> oh, Florida. Thanks a lot and best wishes. 
My pleasure. Thanks. Looking for the summer. Let's venture out into the Caribbean next. Geographer and Caribbean scholar Joshua Jolly Shapiro updates us on how the region's doing. He shares his suggestions for getting acquainted with the variety of cultural scenes you can find from island to island. That's next on Travel with Rick Steves. The Caribbean has long been the object of plenty of fantasies and more than a few misunderstandings by the outside world. Joshua Jolly Shapiro has long been fascinated by the region. He keeps an eye on the Caribbean, visits frequently, and in his book, Island People, Joshua explores how the region's trade routes, slave heritage, and multicultural influences have helped to shape the modern world. From Cuba and Jamaica to Trinidad and Tobago, let's dive into the history, music, and culture of the Caribbean right now on Travel with Rick Steves. Joshua, welcome. Thanks for having me. So how did you get interested in the Caribbean in the beginning? What enthralled you about it? I get asked this question a lot because I grew up quite far from the islands, really. I grew up in the state of Vermont, which is uh, rather snowier than the Caribbean. But I was really entranced from afar by the music, first of all. I fell in love, you know, in my teens with the music of Jamaica first, the music of Cuba. And really, I was so taken with the rhythms and sounds and words of musicians from that part of the world. Uh, Bob Marley was a key influence early on. Mm -hmm. I grew attached to the sounds first, but really then when I went to college, I I remained convinced that the Caribbean was this fascinating place because so much of what we think about as unique to the Americas, you know, people coming from elsewhere, these histories of slavery, traumatic, violent histories in many ways, are really thrown into starkest relief. But also, it's a part of the world that we may think of as just good to go on vacation, but is immensely rich culturally. And many of the cultural forms that have taken shape there have gone on to shape the world and to shape pop culture everywhere, as you say. Probably 90% of the Americans that have an experience in the Caribbean are doing it from a cruise ship. I've done it that way, and a lot of our listeners have. And I would imagine from your point of view, there's a danger in just uh, getting off a cruise ship and doing the predictable things that cruisers will do that you don't really appreciate the depth of the cultural diversity. And i got to be honest, it, it feels like variations on the same flavor when you're seeing it from a cruise ship. What's your frustration with that kind of traveling, and what is there in the Caribbean uh, cultures that we miss if we're not careful? As you say, the cruise industry and tourism in general is a huge deal in, in the Caribbean. Tourism is a big part of the economy for many of these islands, but especially when you go on a cruise, but also if you go to an all-inclusive resort, there's a whole infrastructure that's set up basically for foreigners, and it's meant to essentially to sell the place or to sell souvenirs and knickknacks or spectacular sights to people. But it's very much predicated on just offering up this stuff that, as you say, can be very similar from island to island, you know, uh, sort of faux authentic souvenirs and, and so mm -hmm. on that you tend to experience. But the thing about these places is that if you take the time to step off the official itinerary, to step out of the resort, if you like, and interact with people where they are, where they live, you get a sense of the ways in which people in these islands have formed these cultures in terms of their music, their literature, and many other things that are immensely potent, immensely influential, far beyond the islands themselves and shaping music in places like London, New York, all these things that really come from the island 
And it really takes stepping away from the cruise ship and interacting with people where they live, not on the dock where they're mm-hmm. selling knickknacks. Is it fair to say that, of course, there were indigenous cultures there, but they were almost wiped out entirely after the Europeans came and replaced by African slaves, and then European colonialism after that gives the diversity to the region. And that's awfully simplistic, but how would you give us an understanding of, of the melting pot dimension and, and the tragedy of their history as we'd experience it today as tourists? Yes. Well, your nutshell history isn't far off. You know, in 1492, Columbus turned up, and within 100 years or so, many of the indigenous people who had lived on the islands, the Arawak and the Kalinago, sometimes called Carib, were wiped out by disease and genocide, except for a few places. In the island of Dominica, for example, there's a strong indigenous community still, which is uh, fascinating. But yes, by and large, the culture of the islands was formed by the triangle trade, by Europe's appetite in particular for sugar. Europe gained a sweet tooth in the 1600s, and that's when the the islands really took off. And what happened is that millions of enslaved Africans were brought to the Caribbean, six million in fact, a huge number, and worked on sugar plantations uh, Hmm. for the next three centuries, really. And so the societies of the Caribbean are really, in many ways, produced by this history of slavery, of sugar. The islands, of course, were owned by different European powers. So that one of the fascinating things, as you know, if you've gone on cruises, is that, you know, you can be in an island and then on another island 20 miles away or 50 miles away, which may feel in certain ways similar culturally. And there's a reason for that, because the core of these cultures are from West Africa and Central Africa in many ways. But they were, whether they were owned by France or England or Spain, you know, has had, of course, a huge influence on the culture as it's taken shape over the last few centuries. And so there's an amazing way in which the Caribbean represents this melding of Africa with the languages, certainly, of, of Europe. We see this in, in Cuba, for example, with this incredible African-based music, but with Spanish lyrics and singing, of course, similarly in a place like Jamaica, where this incredible music developed as a kind of riff on American popular music, but absolutely based in deeper West African traditions and and Mm -hmm. with lyrics in English. So that you have someone like a Bob Marley who, as I argue in the book, has really become 30 years after his death, in many ways, the most pervasive musical icon on earth. It's astonishing. There's nowhere you go in the world where you can't see a poster of this guy mm-hmm. or, a, or a picture of him painted on a, on a cafe wall. And that's an amazing thing. We're learning what distinguishes the many islands and cultures of the Caribbean right now on Travel with Rick Steves. Our guest is Joshua Jolly Shapiro. and He's written Island People, the Caribbean and the World. His website is joshuajellyshapiro.com. You're talking about how Bob Marley is, you can see his posters all over the world and so on. The Caribbean does have a bigger presence than its population and its economy would lead you to expect. And in your book, you talk about how the Caribbean is the place where globalization began. How so? What do you mean by that? Yes. Well, basically what I mean by that is that in these islands, which, as I say, were formed by long-distance trade, by the sugar trade and the slave trade in particular, you had things going on a few hundred years ago, uh, namely the mixing of people from all over the world, sophisticated economies, people learning to speak the languages of Europe and communicate in new ways, which we think of as new, but they've been going on in the Caribbean for centuries. 
And I think that that sort of particular mix uh, mm -hmm. created these incredibly rich cultures. But as you say, one of the notable things in recent decades is the way in which these cultures have spread. And one reason for that, of course, is that many people from the islands in the 20th century have left those islands to come to northern cities, you know, looking for work, looking to better their lives. And what that means is that they've had a huge influence on a place like New York, where I live, mm -hmm. uh, in cities like London, Montreal, Paris. Much of the music in particular that people dance to in these places came from the islands. And mm. in New York, as I say, you know, many of the things we identify with New York, for example, hip-hop music or salsa, really, who created hip-hop? It comes from the Bronx in the 1970s. But this was Jamaican kids and Puerto Rican kids uh, drawing on traditions they knew to create something new here in New York. So you get a pan-Caribbean feel in New York. Absolutely. And, you know, the biggest yearly public event here in the city, a lot of people don't know this, is the Labor Day Carnival Parade in Brooklyn. There's well over a million people oh. on the streets. Speaking of carnival, the most memorable experience for me, I think, on my Caribbean cruise was stepping off the ship. And Actually, we stayed longer after everybody else was back on the ship, and the whole community was just overwhelmed with this amazing parade, and it was all Mardi Gras, I would imagine, you know. Yes. If you're traveling in the Caribbean, where would you recommend going for a Mardi Gras, and what would that be like? Yeah, traditions of carnival are, are hugely important to many of the islands. Really the place that has, in certain ways, the richest, certainly the biggest carnival in the islands is in Trinidad, which is an island way down at the southern end of the Antilles. It's not a terribly touristed place, in part because they have oil and have other bases for their economy. But Trinidad is an amazing place because it was English for a very long time, but way back in its history, it was owned by Spain, and then there are many French people there. So they gained this tradition, this Catholic tradition of carnival, right? On Fat Tuesday, Mardi Gras, the farewell to the flesh, as it's called. Mm -hmm. uh, the idea that you're going to get all of your, your sinning and your indulgence away before the 40 days of Lent. And that tradition still, you know, again, brings out hundreds of thousands of people to the street support of Spain to dress up in costume and... Way back in slavery days, carnival was a time of turnabout, as it was called, for people to mimic their masters and to play a role that they're not necessarily afforded in everyday life. It was a safety valve for people to let off steam in a time when they were oppressed, I would imagine. Indeed, yeah, and many people talk about it in that way. And it's a fascinating tradition still in a place like Trinidad, which is mixed ethnically. There are people whose ancestors came from Africa, people who came mm -hmm. from India, but everyone at carnival time, at least the sort of stories told about it, right? It's a time for everyone to, to let off steam, as you say, to dance together, to mm -hmm. experience a different kind of life. Mm -hmm. uh, but many of the small islands in the Lesser Antilles, a place like Dominica, for example, which was devastated by Hurricane Maria. But Dominica, for example, is a place that is an English island, but that was French for a long time. So very rich carnival tradition there. And there's a sort of gentler side to it as a small island. Mm -hmm. But similarly, in Martinique and Guadeloupe, which are right adjacent mm -hmm. to Dominica, wonderful carnival traditions, people uh, using these traditional whips to whip the ground, playing mass, as it's called. It was Martinique where we saw it, and I just I couldn't believe the uh, explosion of culture there. Uh, yeah, fabulous. The Caribbean's on our radar with Joshua Jelly Shapiro right now on Travel with Rick Steves. Josh is a geographer, a visiting scholar at New York University, and the author of Island People, the Caribbean and the World. 
He's also the co-author of Nonstop Metropolis, a New York City atlas. His website is joshuajellyshapiro.com. That's spelled S-C-H-A-P-I-R-O. Joshua, of course, 2017 will be remembered as a, as a tragic year, I think, for generations because of Hurricanes Maria and Irma. Very briefly, I understand that a hurricane has a narrow swath. It doesn't devastate the whole Caribbean. It's kind of potluck which islands get hit and which don't. Which islands uh, were hit the hardest, and where are they at these days? It was. It was a terribly devastating hurricane season. Uh, the islands that were hit hardest ranged from very small places like Barbuda, which was really wiped out by Irma, uh, many of the British Virgin Islands, Tortola and others. When Hurricane Maria came through, it hit Dominica first and really leveled Dominica. Something like 90% of, of dwellings were affected. And this is a very lush, mountainous island, but it looked like the moon after the storm came through. Mm. Uh, and Maria, of course, then went on to hit Puerto Rico. So Puerto Rico uh, suffered a direct hit. And storms have affected Puerto Rico like all of the islands in the past. In 1899, there was a big one. In 1928. But Maria really devastated Puerto Rico because, of course, Puerto Rico is also in the midst of a severe economic crisis, so it's not well prepared to deal with a storm like this. And really, Puerto Rico is still suffering Mm -hmm. uh, weeks and months after the storm. It just is a reminder to me of the economic and political reality of the Caribbean. We think of it as beaches and rum drinks and an easygoing lifestyle. Uh, And of course, to a certain degree, that's what it is. But so much of it has a a heritage of severe poverty and corruption. I think that this is a a dimension of the Caribbean that we're oblivious to when we just take a happy-go-lucky cruise ship. What's your take in general on the Caribbean? Is it on an upward trajectory, or is this just uh, the reality and they'll be struggling to rebuild storm after storm? That's the big question, right? And I think that the situation of the islands, whether you're talking about Jamaica or Cuba or Puerto Rico, is in many ways a a situation of real economic vulnerability. And the thing about these storms is that they reveal vulnerabilities that are already there, right? So Mm -hmm. they reveal much longer histories. And all of these islands have been trying really for decades now to figure out how to thrive economically on the era after sugar. They're not wanting to be sugar-growing places for obvious reasons. That's the sort of history of of slavery. Uh, Many of them have tried to go for tourism as a way to develop. But tourism is a very tricky thing because tourism often, especially if you stay in a hotel that's owned by a, a foreign company, much of the money that's generated doesn't necessarily stay in that place. Uh, mm-hmm. All of the islands are competing for the same tourists. So all of the islands are really trying to figure out, okay, how do we develop a, a sustainable economy that's not necessarily dependent on outsiders mm-hmm. and that lets people stay in these places? Because as I say, the other thing about the history of the islands for the last several decades is many, many people leave. Uh, and that's part of why they've had the influence they've had culturally. But it's also a tragedy in its way because these people come from a Caribbean incredibly diaspora. beautiful places. Yes, and, and these diasporas are created. If we're conscientious travelers and we're going to spend thousands of dollars going to the Caribbean, conceivably you could spend thousands of dollars and none of it would stay on, on these islands that you're taking photographs of and, and uh, enjoying their drinks. Is it realistic for a traveler to get off the ship and consume in a way where the money stays locally? And is that worth uh, thinking about? Absolutely. I think that's essential to think about. In my travels in the region, which are certainly not by cruise ship, but are 
by plane and I go to places and spend days or weeks or months in them. It's incredibly important to think about patronizing places that are owned by people who live in these places, not necessarily going to big resorts that are owned by big foreign companies, but patronizing local restaurants and, and small hotels and inns and so on, where really you're going to have a much richer experience in any case because that allows you to experience mm -hmm. the locality and the unique flavor and color of an island. Uh, mm -hmm. If you just go to an all-inclusive resort, you could be in the Dominican Republic or you could be in Dominica and you wouldn't know the difference. Or you could uh, be in Cancun or Mazatlan and be just basically on the beach. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Joshua Jelly Shapiro. His book is Island People, the Caribbean and the World. If we can just wrap up uh, with your recommendation, if you wanted to appreciate the cultural diversity and really celebrate the Caribbean and you're putting your own trip together, not a cruise, but you're just going to fly into three islands, what three islands would you recommend staying at and why to really enjoy the cultural vibrancy of the Caribbean. Gosh, you're trying to get me in trouble, aren't yep, you? Yep, I, I want gotta, three. I have to. <laughs> <laughs> they all have beautiful beaches, I can I can attest. Uh, I'm talking beyond beaches. Cultures. I want to know where you feel that culture. Yes. That wonderful, melting pot, distinct kind of Caribbean culture. I would say that a place that I fell in love with 20 years ago and keep returning to is Cuba, uh, and people may or may not be allowed to travel there in the same way soon, but the potency of the culture of the city of Havana, the music, the mix of people, transcends politics, and it's completely extraordinary and intoxicating. Havana was the great city of the Caribbean centuries ago, and it still remains that today for me. Trinidad is an island that many tourists do not go to, just because it's not really set up for tourism in the same way, but anyone who goes there will be rewarded with an experience of an amazing melting pot of cultures from South Asia, from Africa, from the Americas in terms of cuisine and music. You haven't lived till you've heard a, a hundred-piece steel band playing in full flight, and that's something you can only do in Trinidad. And then I will say the small island, a small island that I really have a soft spot for is Dominica. And Dominica was, of course, devastated recently by Hurricane Maria, but it's an extraordinary place, in part because it doesn't have a big airport, so it doesn't get mass tourism in the same ways. But it's called the Nature Island for a reason, mm. and that's because it's incredibly lush and green and peaceful in its way. But as ever, suffused with this fascinating history of having been French, having been English, uh, having a, a remaining strong indigenous community there, of Kalinago people as they call themselves. And so Dominica really is in many ways a kind of emblem of the Caribbean at, at its best. Joshua Jolly Shapiro, thanks so much for sharing with us uh, an insight into an area that you clearly know and love, and uh, congratulations on a fascinating book, Island People, the Caribbean and the World. Thanks so much. Travel with Rick Steves is produced at Rick Steves Europe in Edmonds, Washington by Tim Tatton, Sarah McCormick, and Isaac Kaplan-Wilner. We get website support from Andrew Wakeling, and our theme music is by Jerry Frank. Thanks to WMNF Radio in Tampa and the Radio Foundation in New York for their help this week. There's more online at ricksteves.com radio. Rick Steves teaches smart European travel. At ricksteves.com, you'll find an archive of interviews from his radio show, free audio tours of Europe's top sites, and a world of information to help turn your travel dreams into smooth and affordable reality. Begin your next trip 
at ricksteves.com.